Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? There was no mistaking the message in Ottawa, even as the remnants of a hurricane bore down on Nova Scotia as skies over western Canadian cities cleared of stinging smoke, the federal government restated its commitment to fight climate change in the throne speech. But for a group of young people, words are just that, and they're pretty tired of hearing words instead of seeing action. So they're using the courts to try to fight climate change, to force the government to take action. Lawyers, legal briefs, judges? Is this really a solution to the climate challenge? This week, we examine the case for and against, first by hearing from the plaintiffs. So Nova Scotia itself is quite big. It's a, it's a whole province. It's, it's, it's quite large. But our one connection to the mainland is this Isthmus through to New Brunswick, and that could be wiped out in the next hurricane. Science is foretelling that, that that is going to happen. I think we're going to do... Say ça? We say ça. <laughs> All right, everybody, are we ready to go? I'm excited. Okay, that person who is giving me the geography lesson is Ira Reinhardt-Smith. He is 16, and as you can tell, he's from Nova Scotia, Caledonia, Nova Scotia. And the other voice belongs to Hannah Edenshaw. She's 17. Hannah is from Haida Gwaii off the coast of northern BC, and she's a member of the Chitskidne clan. In one sense, they're like a lot of young people, very worried about what they're seeing around them, particularly on their respective coasts. It's kind of crazy right now. We have storms that are increasingly powerful all throughout the year. People will remember Hurricane Dorian, which swept through our province last year. It was a really scary experience. And not only what is happening now with the rising sea levels and the erosion, also what we know is going to happen Everything about Haida Gwaii is changing. It's really, really scary. It's really scary, especially because, you know, we've already had to face so much change and so much oppression. And with climate change impacting the very, like, fabric of, like, everything about my way of life, like my right to clean air and water, the threat of rising sea levels, my culture and my history. Is your house falling into the sea? It's, my house isn't... The water like comes right up, up past our porch and it like goes to like by the door of my room. And it's really scary because it's just going to keep on, you know, getting worse every year. That is scary. Yeah. Now you could probably hear worries like this from a lot of young people. I have. They're scared of what the future will be like, worried that they won't survive. But what's different about these two and 13 other young people from across Canada is that they have filed a lawsuit fighting climate change with the law. Well, the um, lawsuit is a challenge under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as well as the Public Trust Doctrine. 
So the plaintiffs are saying that the government. That's has Catherine Boys Parker. She's one of the lawyers representing Hannah and Ira in this case. It's called La Rose versus the Queen. And what she will argue is something pretty new in Canadian law. She claims Ottawa is violating these young people's rights when it comes to climate change. But just how is government violating those rights? Well, we say the government has breached the plaintiff's right to life, liberty and security of the person because the excessive GHG emissions that the government has allowed to emit from Canada and accumulate in the atmosphere have caused such severe climatic impacts that their very health, their ability to live where they want to live, and their safety is threatened. But here's the thing. All of the impacts Boyce Parker just mentioned are happening to all of us. So why the focus on young people? Youth are particularly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. The vast majority of climate change-related diseases um, are, are experienced by youth. Youth play, uh, experience special risks when it comes to uh, climatic events like the wildfires that we're experiencing right now. Um, and, and youth as well don't have a political voice. So they're in a particularly vulnerable position um, and they need the protection of the Constitution. Her point there is that young people can't vote, of course. There have been some similar so far unsuccessful challenges in courts in Ontario and Quebec. This one, though, is more sweeping and ambitious. But that raises a question. Is it right, though, to place the legal, all the legal blame on Ottawa's shoulders? I mean, aren't we all responsible for what's happening to the climate, by which I mean corporations, commuters, so many of us? Don't we all share blame and responsibility? That's true. Everybody does have to take their own responsibility for that. And, and it would be very difficult for Ottawa to be able to change things by itself. People do need to take responsibility for their own actions. At the same time, the government is exacerbating the harm that's occurring because of the GHG emissions that occur throughout the country. Government has the capacity to reduce its own emissions. Government has the capacity to control other people's emissions, and it's failing to do that. And this is a problem that people can't solve by themselves. It requires the coordinated effort of the federal government. But what about corporations? Why not go after them? Well, there's no single corporation we could go after that we could effectively stop um, the, the impacts that Canada is having. It's the responsibility of the government to ensure that this is done. And it's, and it's up to the government to decide how they want to distribute the benefits and the burdens of climate change. That's a political decision. The lawsuit doesn't say what they have to do in that regard. It just says they have to meet a responsible number. They have to meet the kinds of commitments that they've been making for years now on the international stage, saying that they're going to reduce emissions. They have to live up to what they're saying and meet a science-based target for GHG reduction emissions. How they do that is a political question. It's up to the government. They can decide what kinds of industries they need to to focus on in order to achieve that. But they need to try and achieve it. They've been saying they're going to do it. They haven't done it. And the, the young people of Canada don't can't afford to wait for them to take any more time. They need the help of the court. Now we're going to come back to this case a little later on in the program. But first, a bit of history. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I was surprised to learn this, but if you go way back to the 7th century, the first example of environmental protection under the law appears to be when an Anglo-Saxon bishop enacted a law to protect the birds on the Farne Islands off the northeast coast of what's now the United Kingdom. And to this day, the birds, mainly puffins, are still protected. No lawsuit involved. For one of the first grassroots campaigns involving the environment, we zip ahead to 1739. That's when Benjamin Franklin and his neighbors petitioned the Pennsylvania Assembly to stop dumping waste and remove tanneries from Philadelphia's commercial district. Foul smell, lower property values, disease and interference with firefighting are cited. The industries complain that their rights are being violated, but Franklin argues for what he called public rights. Franklin and the environmentalists win a symbolic battle with the recognition of the problem, but the dumping goes on. And yes, I admit this is far from a definitive list, but down the centuries, more lawsuits emerged and became more common, really taking off in the 1970s. Court cases involving environmental protection in general, disposal of radioactive waste, asbestos exposure, and in the Supreme Court of Canada in 1988, a ruling upholding Ottawa's right to protect the oceans. All right, let's roll forward now to more contemporary history, environmental court cases that got the Hollywood treatment. These people don't dream about being rich. They dream about being able to watch their kids swim in a pool without worrying that they'll have to have a hysterectomy at the age of 20. We should want to nail DuPont. All of us should. American business is better than this, gentlemen. And when it's not, we should hold them to it. That's how you build faith in a system. Films like Aaron Brockovich with Julia Roberts or the more recent Dark Waters highlighting crusading law firms with headline-grabbing legal battles involving environmental damage, going after big bad corporations for the harm they cause to people. Then there are cases familiar to many Canadians. The Federal Court of Appeal has dealt a blow to the federal government, but despite the outcome, Finance Minister Bill Morneau says the investment makes economic sense. Today, Kinder Morgan shareholders also voted to endorse our government's purchase of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. First Nations and environmental groups going to court to try to stop specific projects, such as the Trans Mountain Pipeline, or Greenpeace's earlier challenge of the expansion of the Darlington nuclear power plant in Ontario. These kinds of cases hinge on the quality of environmental assessments or the constitutional rights of First Nations. But what we're talking about here, a sweeping challenge to government, asking a court to order elected politicians to act based on people's right to a stable environment, one that doesn't see extremes in weather, wildfire, drought and destruction, that has a pretty short history. One of the first cases and first successes in this area came in Pakistan sometime after I visited there in 2009 to report on the water crisis. A few hours' drive from Karachi in southern Pakistan, the first sight of what used to be one of the world's great rivers is jarring. From a bridge above the Indus, Mohammed Tahir Qureshi points to a vista dominated not by water, but by sand. The sand dunes, they are extending right from the upstream up to the Arabian Sea. So, so the mighty Indus River is mighty no more. Uh, absolutely. What I didn't know then was that another facet of the crisis was developing much farther upstream, hundreds of kilometres to the northeast. 
Indus River water needed to run Askar Lagari's family sugarcane farm was getting harder to come by. We were doing good business, but it was good for the short run, but we knew that the water is just going to run out. And um, in addition to me, other subsistence farmers are also sort of relying on this, but it's it's just a ticking time bomb in that sense. I spoke to Askar Lagari last week. As I said, the farm is owned and run by his family. But he saw the water table dropping and he thought the courts might force the government to take action. He was, after all, a law student. Five years ago, he won. A judge confirmed that Pakistanis have a constitutional right to a safe, clean environment, a right the courts first recognized in 1994. But the judge went further, ordering the government to implement policies and report back to him. To be honest, uh, the impact directly on on our sort of uh, sugarcane operation perhaps isn't um, as, as great, right? Lagari is now a practicing lawyer, and he told me he takes a broader view of what his case achieved. The government has banned any new water-intensive sugar mills near the Indus River, and it's working with farmers to use irrigation systems that conserve water. But... I think the victory here is the fact that climate change was sort of introduced into the government's own dictionary. Because you have to understand that the nature of the case that was filed, there were no sort of direct damages that we had sought or any kind of uh, direct measures that would have affected my own sort of farms. But the idea was to get the ball rolling on larger governmental policy. And that's sort of where the court took everything as well. Askar Lagari, I'm wondering um, if Pakistan doesn't have the resources or the money to make the necessary changes, doesn't that make your whole court case a bit of an empty victory? Um, I don't think so. And and the reason for that is because you can see that, especially on the climate change litigation sort of landscape, even internationally, you take what you get. I think one thing that you might be also be interested in is that on the basis of this particular case, other litigations have also been initiated. And then one um, fundamental sort of litigation that's going on now is that a group of female petitioners have also petitioned the high court arguing that women are more disproportionately affected by climate change and as a consequence of which, if the government is not addressing climate change, it is effectively discriminating against women. And I think even conceiving of an argument like this and sort of bringing it to court has become possible because certain steps were taken. I think it's always a long battle. Now, there are other cases in the Netherlands, in Ireland, and other countries, each meeting with varying degrees of success. Linda Collins knows about them all. She's a professor with the Centre for Environmental Law and Global Sustainability at the University of Ottawa. And when you listen to Linda talk, it's easy to understand the significance of the Canadian case. Most countries around the world actually have an explicit constitutional right to a healthy environment. We don't, and... We are still waiting for courts to recognize any kind of violation of human rights through any kind of environmental pollution. So it's a gray area. Collins is realistic. Cases like the one in Pakistan show even victory may not lead to breathtaking change. And it might not happen quickly. It can take years, even a decade, to argue one case. Well, there's no question that 10 years is too long. And there's no question that litigation is not going to be the panacea. But what's interesting to me is, does it have an important role to play? And I think it absolutely does. 
if you know, I had my choice, it would be that everybody in the federal government wakes up tomorrow with an ecological consciousness and just makes the changes that we need. But since we haven't seen adequate action, especially provincial levels, you know, litigation is at this point the best that we can do as lawyers. Other sectors can do other things, education, public awareness building, voting with your dollars, all of those things are important. But litigation can really be sort of a can opener and a focal point for consciousness raising among the public. And it can produce important legally binding changes. My name is Rudy Kelly, and I am an herb original. I am chief. My dad was a great chief of the Simshan Nation, beloved by his people. But at home, with his family, he brought anger and pain. He told me that to succeed, I would have to leave everything behind. Now I'm on a journey to find out who and what my dad really was. The Herb Original is an all-new CBC podcast. Available now. There is one other international case that's getting a lot of attention south of the border. This is from the CBS News magazine 60 Minutes. Of all the cases working their way through the federal court system, none is more interesting or potentially more life-changing than Juliana versus the United States. To quote one federal In substance, Juliana sounds a lot like LaRose, the Canadian case before the courts. A group of young people arguing the government is violating their rights. Juliana was filed five years ago and it's had a bumpy ride through the legal system, challenged at every turn. Listen to one judge pose an unusual hypothetical situation to challenge a lawyer's argument on using the courts to force action. Assume that we have rogue raiders coming across the Canadian border into the Northwest and they're kidnapping children of a certain age and murdering them. And the White House refuses to do anything. And Congress doesn't act. Can those people go to court to compel action? Now, just to repeat, that is a hypothetical. Yet the answer to the underlying question, can a court ever order government to act in a manner like this, has yet to be resolved in a legal sense. That's because the Trump administration, like the Obama administration before it, has rejected the right of the young people to even bring the case to court. So guess what? That is exactly what's happening in Canada. Remember what I said earlier? The federal government proclaimed in the throne speech it knows Canadians want action now on climate change and it is promising to deliver. Well, in just a few days, lawyers for the federal government will ask a judge to throw out the Canadian young people's case even before it's formally heard. Ira and Hannah will be watching closely. I'm sad to say that I'm not very surprised that the federal government is trying to throw it out. They've been ignoring the pleas of youth and activists to deal with the climate emergency for so many years now, so why would they start listening now? They're trying to get it thrown out, and basically the end result is they will fail, that I'm quite confident in. My rights are frankly being violated, and just knowing that is very empowering, knowing that I have the right to security of person, knowing that I'm entitled to clean water and clean air, you know? Their lawyer, Catherine Boyce-Parker, is ready to fight back. Listen to our exchange. 
Now, we did ask the government for an interview on this case, but the government declined saying the matters before the courts. But um, in its written argument, um, as it's attempting to have this case dismissed, it is essentially saying that you want a court to decide whether the government is doing a good job and that there isn't any legal standard for judging the wisdom of a government's policies on climate change. What do you say to that? Well, you're right. The government is trying to have this lawsuit struck as being what they call non-justiciable, saying that there's no role for the courts here. So the government is admitting that climate change is serious and that it's having dangerous impacts in Canada right now. But what they're arguing is that the courts have no role to play in ensuring that the plaintiff's rights are protected in this regard. And we say that just can't be the case. It can't be the case that government um, can, without any constitutional constraints whatsoever, continue to engage in this destructive activity that is proven. Everyone understands now it is causing all of this harm to the plaintiffs. It can't be that they get a free pass on that just because the issue of climate change is complex. But they don't get a free pass. There are elections. They are held accountable by elections. our, Our plaintiffs can't vote in those elections. And the difficulties of climate change have spanned many, many different political parties. People like to say this is a political problem. It is almost an impossible political problem to solve because um, the practices that we have are so entrenched and there are such strong uh, lobby groups behind continuing those practices that it would be very, very difficult for a government to actually meet the targets that it set itself. And that's why it's not a political question. It's a constitutional question. It's not an option. It's a requirement. How they get there, who's going to bear the burdens of this, what industries have to reduce emissions, that is a political question that government can decide. But they've proven incapable of meeting the targets that they themselves have set. Now, Ottawa's stance on this might seem confusing. Listen to this from just last week. Everybody, as I understand it, agrees that climate change is a serious threat to life on Earth as we know it. Some call it an existential threat. It's, it's, it's doubly so, shall we say, in terms of Canada that is surrounded by water on three sides, and particularly the Arctic. And there's evidence <clears throat> before the court that we are already seeing the effects of it. Now, whether I agree or not with that, those are accepted facts that are before the court. That is Supreme Court of Canada Judge Michael Muldaver speaking during the hearing on the federal government's new carbon tax. It will be some months before that case is decided. But here is a bit of the federal government's lawyer, Guy Pratt, in that hearing. He's defending the government's right to impose a carbon tax in the name of fighting climate change. We are at issue where the uh, effectiveness of our remedies for this sick planet is at issue. Surely the government stance on this to defend the carbon tax to take action on climate change? That must win some praise from Professor Collins in Ottawa. Our current federal government hasn't done enough, but it's done more than any other government in Canadian history, and that is very much to its credit. And the current federal government should be commended for what it has done on climate change. But then there's also the logic and the timing. Ottawa defending action on climate change one week only to turn around and fight against a group of young people who want action on climate change the next week. 
As I said earlier, the government won't comment, but Linda Collins will. I think it's just fear of liability. Governments always want to have maximum freedom of action. There's a tendency to not want to be constrained by constitutional, you know, narrow constitutional constraints. Um, and I think, you know, the government is probably worried about judicial oversight of its climate program because scientifically, although this government has done more than any other in Canadian history, it's clearly not going far enough. The, the federal government is doing more than many of our provincial governments, but it's not actually doing enough to preserve Canadians' life, liberty, and security of the person. So there's an understandable reluctance to put that evidence before the court and have a neutral adjudicator rule, yes or no, you're complying with the charter. It will dictate federal policy. Whatever happens with the LaRose case this week, it's unlikely to stop Canadians from arguing that they have a constitutional right to a stable climate. Linda Collins predicts, though, that things will come full circle. As to the future of climate litigation, these cases are going to continue to come. And not just against governments. I think governments are going to be the next plaintiffs in climate litigation. Just as in the tobacco context, when the price tag gets high enough, governments begin to think, well, why shouldn't we recover some of the costs of this from those who produce the harm? I mean, no one is suggesting that fossil fuel companies should pay the full cost of climate change. That's probably not even possible. But I think governments are going to come to realize that it doesn't make sense to require fossil fuel companies to pay none of the costs. Just a few days ago, the last of Hurricane Teddy blew through Nova Scotia. Ira Reinhardt-Smith might be one of the plaintiffs now, but climate change is something he has been thinking about for years. His young life punctuated by rushing winds, raging seas and soaking rains. We can't wait for the government to keep saying, we'll make a plan that will be up to the most current science. We need them to be forced to make a plan that's to the current science. He sounds pretty cynical about politics. The law is just about all he seems to believe in now. This case, it it's the only way forward because we've seen in the past they're not going to follow up on the promises. As Hannah watches the old ways of her people slip away along with the land around her home in Haida Gwaii, she's responded with fierce pride and faith in what the law can do. I've seen, like, for my whole life, my rights be treated as optional by the Canadian government. Rights of Indigenous peoples are so often looked past and not considered. And that's why I'm so, so grateful for, like, people who've empowered me and, like, made me feel like a fight for my rights is a fight that I can win, which is, like, so revolutionary as an Indigenous woman in Canada, that a fight for my rights is a fight that I feel I can win. I feel like... That's a win in itself. That may be a wise philosophy given the nature of the court battle ahead. A battle for their future, for their rights, but one there is no guarantee of winning. Next week on What on Earth, we're looking at what might be the biggest observable sign of climate change yet, melting sea ice. Right now in the central Arctic, not that far from the North Pole, actually. That's Professor Marcus Rex on a polar icebreaker where he's leading the Mosaic expedition studying Arctic climate. Over a scratchy satellite phone, he shares what he's been seeing. 
we see as colors, we, we see out of the window is really thin. It uh, has melted a lot during the summer, and the sea ice extend overall in the Arctic is at its second lowest value since uh, we uh, can calculate these values. Um, so it is a dramatic sign of the uh, fast change, the fast uh, global warming, which is particularly pronounced here in the Arctic. Next week, we'll look at what the near-record sea ice melt this summer means for the Arctic and the planet, as well as some proposals, which might sound a little far-fetched, to slow down the melt. That does it for us this week, and thanks as always to our team, associate producer Rachel Sanders, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.